Um, I know and am acutely aware of the anxiety people feel right now. And I don't mean to be uh, trite or cliched in any way when I say we are all in this together. If we do the right things, if we all follow the advice that is being given, we can get through this and we will get through this. That was Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, announcing the first social distancing measures in Scotland on March 16. Just weeks later, ahead of the One World Together at Home concert, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, added, We're all in this together. The sentence has gone viral. And one would hope that in times of crisis, our better angels will prevail. And at times they do. Yet, Despite these sparks of hope, the coronavirus pandemic is highlighting one of the gravest strains shaping our world, inequality in its many forms. While the ongoing global medical emergency deepens inequalities both between and within societies and further entrenches gender inequality, public health experts are aware of inequality itself acting as a multiplier on viruses spread. Welcome to The Global Strain, a podcast that looks at how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting different policy areas and our daily lives. I'm your host, Joel Sandu, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the issue of inequality. While it is impossible to explore all relevant dimensions of inequality in one podcast, we will speak to four guests about who suffers disproportionately from the current pandemic and ask what can be done. As countries across Asia and Europe begin to ease their lockdown policy, COVID-19 is still in its early days in parts of the global south. It's worth taking a pause and reflecting on why healthcare systems across the globe were so quickly overburdened in the first place. At the time of this recording, Italy had the highest COVID-19 death toll in Europe, and the country's medical facilities were overwhelmed despite having one doctor for every 243 citizens. Now imagine... What could happen in a country like Zimbabwe that has only one doctor for 10,000 of its citizens? When it comes to ventilators, the machines that help patients breathe, numbers look terrifyingly bleak. The Central African Republic, for example, has three ventilators for its five million people, while Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso have no more than 13 and 11 machines respectively for their populations. My first guest is Elizabeth Sidiropoulos, Chief Executive of the South African Institute of International Affairs. I mentioned to Elizabeth that there have been a number of pandemics over the last decades, including Ebola, dengue, malaria, SARS, and Zika. So what makes COVID-19 different from past pandemics, and what is its potential impact on the poorest countries on the African continent? Of course, what is different from, uh, from other pandemics is that this is fairly largely widespread. I mean, it's it's completely global in its impact. It has affected every, virtually every single country on, on the globe. And the African continent, of course, interestingly, the only country that has not had any cases uh, of coronavirus is Lesotho. But nevertheless, it has affected um, everybody. It has forced uh, large swathes of the global economy to shut down, to lock down. And compared to Ebola and, and, and Zika, let's let's look at those two uh, specifically. It is it is obviously far more easily uh, 
transmissible, although it's not, you know, Ebola, the fatality rate of Ebola is, is certainly much higher than uh, than coronavirus, but it's it's more widely spread. And of course, it, it has, ha- you know, it's it's much higher in terms of its fatality than uh, than flus. So from that perspective, it's, it's, it's very different. And its impact is very different because it is so easily, uh, much more easily transmissible. It, it does mean, and this is one of the big concerns of, of African uh, governments and other developing economies, it, it can completely overwhelm already weak public health systems. And I think this has been the, the, big, uh, the big problem. Most of the countries in the African continent have uh, very limited uh, resources uh, around public health, whether that is in terms of personnel, uh, so doctors and, and nurses, or indeed uh, uh, medical facilities and equipment. And of course, a system that, that is effective throughout the country. What has, of course, been the case, particularly with uh, some of the outbreaks that you've that you've noted, is that in the process of working through those outbreaks, in 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 certainly if you're thinking of Ebola in West Africa and also in the in the Congo, the system has had to uh, to respond and adjust accordingly. And so, some of the lessons learned from those experiences, as well as the infrastructure that uh, the, that came with it, uh, will probably hold some of these countries in good stead. As we uh, as we move through this um, uh, this pandemic, but apart from the global uh, from the public health challenges, there are also, of course, uh, fiscal constraints uh, in terms of being able to to provide the kind of stimulus required, particularly around creating social safety nets, an area where, of course, um, African countries are are pretty weak, and. Uh, where uh, African economies also ha- have a high level of informality. So when you go into lockdown, like many of them have, uh, what happens to your large informal sector in terms of livelihood? So this balance, this trade-off sometimes between uh, saving lives, which takes on a health dimension and health interventions, and saving livelihoods, which is about economic and economic uh, instruments, and of course, uh, safety nets is is is, is the challenges that uh, that African economies and indeed other developing economies are facing at the moment. Over a dozen African countries have the world's youngest population under the age of 15. What does this demographic data point mean in the fight against COVID-19 outbreak? And could this somehow be an advantage in the long run for these countries? Uh, I think there are two aspects to this question, uh, to the answer to this question. Uh, the one, of course, is, is the health dimension, where uh, it seems, although I think the, the jury is probably still out on that, in, as it is on many aspects of uh, understanding the um, uh, COVID-19, is, is the fact that younger populations are, are less susceptible to contracting it or contract it in a much, much milder form than people who are, who are much older. I think the, the jury is still out on that, and, and there are you know, they're constantly sort of new new pieces of evidence coming out that shows that it might have a different impact or that uh, children may be asymptomatic, but nevertheless uh, transmit it and so on. But I'm not an epidemiologist. so I'm just reflecting some of the things that I have read um, read recently. So there is, at one level, there is that dimension which says that, well, we have a much younger population. So possibly the, the kind of impact that Italy is now dealing with, which has uh, Italy having the oldest population population in, in Europe is something that we don't have to, that we probably might be able to avoid. But there is another dimension to it, which is um, the socioeconomic and, and economic impact uh, of it, which is that because uh, many African countries have looked at what's happened uh, at the measures that were taken in China and the measures that have been taken in Europe, 
and, and, and other developed economies. The measures that they have then put in place in turn, and I should say the measures that they have put in place very early, unlike, say, certain countries in Europe, have been uh, very similar. So it's been about lockdown. Now, what lockdown does is it also has an impact. So firstly, it, it's intended, and to some extent it has done that, stop the rate of transmission or slow down the rate of transmission. But what it also does is it stops uh, the usual activities, which include most notably in the case of talking about what this means for the youth demographic in, in, in Africa is education, schooling, and of course, normal health interventions, uh, particularly vaccinations for young children. And we've seen already in a number of, of instances a decline in the number of, of vaccinations, of ordinary, of, you know, usual vaccinations for young uh, uh, children. We've also seen in, in, in some instances a slowdown in, in people actually taking uh, some of the medication around for HIV AIDS, so ARV treatments, as well as TB treatments in countries like South Africa, which have a high incidence of those cases. Now, those combined, both the dimensions around vaccination of young children, as well as the uh, disruption to, to schooling, have the and also the, the extent to which these might be disrupt, disrupted over time, actually will have a very negative, can potentially have a very negative impact on young people. In, in the continent in terms of education, in terms of, of, uh, of, of nutrition and, and growth uh, and, and so on. And so there is a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword here that um, while we do have a, a, a youthful population, some of the, the dimensions of COVID, which are all of society dimensions, could actually uh, be deleterious, uh, not necessarily in terms of getting COVID-19 specifically, but about the uh, other unintended consequences of some of the instruments we put in place to stop the, the spread. We know that viruses not only deepen inequalities in societies they affect, but that inequality also acts as a multiplier in societies hit by viruses. So I asked Elizabeth whether this was the case in South Africa with COVID-19. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it is very much what, what COVID has done as, as a whole is, is not create new realities, but in, in fact, throw the existing realities into stark relief. In, in the South African context, of course, uh, the economy has now been in lockdown for uh, 47 days, 48 days. We have begun to open up certain sectors. But um, what we have seen are, are a number of, of points. Uh, certainly, we have a, a number of sectors that can go online, that can work virtually. And so those, those, those have been working virtually from home uh, with sufficient internet access and online, etc., for, for most of that period of, of 47 days. However, those are the higher income uh, groups, so to speak. You know, the lower income, the ones who are, are uh, sort of working in, in much more traditional um, sectors or are indeed informal, those uh, uh, strata of, of, of the population have been the worst affected in terms of being able to earn an income. Uh, there have been a number of interventions by the, uh, by the government to provide assistance. So there's been a broadening of the social safety net in terms of uh, the existing uh, beneficiaries. Uh, there has also been a, a role 
roll out to unemployed people who are not actually uh, receiving any kind of uh, social benefit in the because they are not uh, pensioners or they don't qualify for a child grant or a disability. So there's been a rollout of, of that. But that, those are really very, you know, the government is also constrained from its uh, from its fiscal, uh, in its fiscal space to be able to do anything significant. So for example, unemployed people who receive no, uh, no grant, uh, whatever, have now been granted 350 rand uh, uh, starting from, from May. 350 rand is probably, I think, you know, 20, 25 euros. I mean, this is not uh, this is not a lot of money a month, but it's certainly something. But what we have seen as the lockdown has progressed is that, you know, we have a highly unequal society, huge poverty. And so the people who have um, uh, the people who are at the at the lowest levels in terms of income are the ones who have been affected by uh, being not being able to to access food because not because there isn't food, but because they just don't have the money. The fact that they also have to to be in, in lockdown means that it's also really very difficult for them if you're leaving, living in a one-room apartment and they're in a one-room shack and there are 10 people and you're living in close proximity. How do you observe social distancing? You have to then, there has been an intervention to provide food parcels, both from NGOs as well as from the government, but that creates its own logistical challenges, both in terms of getting there, uh, having to use public transport with uh, the issues around social distancing, as well as waiting in queues for hours where it's not always possible to use social distancing. So many of the people at the at the lower rungs of, of income and informality are actually not able to, are, are less able to avoid contracting um, the virus just by virtue of, of the societal setup. So people who can work virtually are able to carry on working under the lockdown. But what about those who cannot or those who work in the informal economy? What happens to them if there is a second or even a third wave of this pandemic, how will South Africa's economically most vulnerable cope? I think the impact is both on those and the the future of the economy, quite frankly, is 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 quite severe. We're expecting. Well, some of the estimations by the by the scientists indicate that the pandemic, uh, at least in this first wave, may peak over the next uh, two months. Uh, so taking us into in, into July, uh, certainly some of the hope of government by continuing with uh, the lockdown measures, although they may certainly ease up some of them over the course of the next few weeks. They will have to for socio economic regions. There, I think the government hopes to be able to, to spread the, to flatten the curve, so to speak, all the way to September, by which stage we're also moving into spring, hopefully with a, a sort of a decline in, in the first wave. That just gives them more time to, pr to prepare in terms of, of, of the health system. The reality is that this economy, which was already suffering from nine to 10 years of state capture uh, under the Zuma administration, uh, cannot, has very limited resources. So it's, this is not an economy. This is not the economy that existed in 2008 when and 2009 when the global financial crisis hit, where you know we had been experiencing growth for some years and the economy was as fairly uh, was much more robust than it is now, and certainly the public fiscus was much more uh, robust uh, than it is now. And so th this economy cannot continue in lockdown until we 
you know, until the first wave is over. Um, so there's going to have to be some opening opening up. And this is, I think, the way in which the government certainly has articulated it, and it may need to be region by region. So where there are uh, epicenters of outbreak like there have been in Cape Town, you adopt a different um, lockdown level to, say, uh, other parts of the country where it may be less uh, less severe. So that's the one. Uh, the, the second point is that we will have to, if there is a significant second wave, I am not sure that the economy will actually, the economy is going to be much, much, much weaker. Uh, already small businesses are closing down. The assistance that the state is providing is not sufficient and certainly is not, uh, not everybody is eligible for it. So we're looking at a pretty dire situation over the next uh, eight months um, and, and to a year uh, from an economic perspective, which will just increase, I think, our levels of debt. The government will have to borrow much more. And um, I, I actually, I, I fear uh, the outcome. We're all in this together. I asked Elizabeth what she thought of this powerful quote, given that inequality is a reality and COVID-19's impact can vary depending on where you were born, where you live, your socioeconomic status, and a number of other factors. I think that's a powerful message. And um, certainly in the South African context, I think there has been, to some extent, a significant rallying across uh, strata where people, you know, who have had means are trying to provide uh, support to those who have uh, less means, both in terms of making contributions to the government's uh, COVID solidarity fund, uh, certainly private sector as well as individuals, private individuals, where I think uh, there have been a number of, of initiatives by civil society in South Africa. Africa has a very active and vibrant civil society, both to raise money as well as to provide support to the most vulnerable. I think where people, including private households, are able to continue supporting their staff and domestic help, I think there has been, it's, it's been quite amazing to see uh, many people uh, sort of believe that this is important, that this is, you know, this is critical. This is about us all being in it together. But of course, you know, that can only go so much, so, so, uh, so far. And um, I think part of it is, is retaining that social compact or that trust between the government's ability to to manage the situation and to make decisions that seem to be rational and and make sense and uh, the commitment then of the citizenry to to be responsive both to the interventions in terms of providing support to the government as well as uh, sticking to to the conditions of the lockdown and I think what we have seen in the last couple of days um, in the last couple of weeks in, in South Africa is the beginning of, of that fraying of that trust and that social compact I think that's critical in terms of, uh, of the deep-seated challenges that South Africa faces, which COVID has simply just brought to the fore. And, and I hope we are able to recalibrate to, uh, to where we were sort of a, a couple of months ago with a great deal of, of, of trust and, and confidence in, in the decisions taken by the government to keep the, the citizenry safe, the, to keep the population uh, safe, both in terms of lives, but also in terms of livelihoods. Elizabeth mentioned the role of civil society and what civil society is doing in South Africa to help ease the strain caused by COVID-19. So we decided to reach out to Jody Alamaya, an alumna of the Global Governance Futures Program and an urban governance specialist in Cape Town. Jody is also involved in improving the well-being of her city and the livelihood of people living in it through her civil society engagements. When I spoke to Jody on May 1st, I asked if she could give us a sense of the impact COVID-19's had on Cape Town in terms of confirmed cases and deaths, and how this compares to other parts of the world. Compared to many places in the world, it's actually not too severe. 
We're currently sitting on 5,647 confirmed cases. I'm in the province of Western Cape and we have the highest number out of the provinces. So we are on 2,342 confirmed cases in our province. Um, so globally, that's that's relatively low. We went into, into lockdown with just over 1,000 confirmed cases, uh, 37 days. I'm losing count 36 or 37 days ago. That's sort of the situation at the moment. A day before I called Jody, I came across a story she had sent me about a young South African man by the name of Mzi Kona. Now, Mzi has a young family and, because of COVID-19, lost his job and didn't know how he'll pay for his rent. Mzi just so happens to be Jody's former colleague. She tells me more about Mzi's story and what community networks like Cape Town Together are doing to help. He's probably a fairly typical average young young South African young young black South African grew up in a in a township worked his way into into a job as a project manager in an events uh, driven organization has you know a young family that he takes care of they rent a very small uh, room in one of the townships and obviously if your job is connected to events there's no work at the moment so he he has has lost that, um, but like many, also becoming kind of very very involved in community level organisation, mobilisation, uh, working together to provide support for people that are that are very desperate. So we've created in in Cape Town a network called Cape Town Together, which is a network of community action networks. So each neighbourhood has has a network that's identifying the most vulnerable people in that net in that neighborhood and sort of matched up across neighborhoods as well to allow for support and um, a lot of charity but also a lot of lesson learning and, and sharing about how to sort of organize and, and social distance safely and all of that sort of thing so yeah the the link that I sent you was was of this young young man had created a a sort of a theme song for the the Cape Town Together Network, which was partially aimed at inspiring and, and motivating people. If you know the local context, there were a few um, more uh, critical phrases that he added in there that, that I think uh, <laughs> local government and others would have noticed. I can recommend checking out the song by Mzikona on Twitter. Look up at Mzikona Mgedle. That's M-Z-I-K-H-O-N-A-M-G-E-D-L-E. So... Is the South African government looking at any particular country or countries for best practices on how to stop the virus from spreading? I'm not 100% sure if they're looking at one specific example. Uh, we took quite a conservative and rapid response. The reason for that, I think a lot of people misinterpret and think that it's about trying to prevent infection. My understanding is that it was to to buy time so that when we do enter a phase of, of peak infection, we've had some time to better equip our healthcare sector, our, our mortality sector and, and others. Um, and that's very much based on advice from World Health Organization, Harvard and others that all sort of put out these these templates and these frameworks for lockdown and release from lockdown once once you have increased the capacity of those systems to test and treat and and then have a kind of a phased reopening based on allowing the kind of least vulnerable to to go back to something that sort of resembles life as normal. Obviously, we are on the African continent, which has experienced Ebola. So a lot of the kind of calls and things that I've been involved in have included experts who were involved in in the Ebola response and in particular the thinking around how do we respond to to infections in informal settlements a lot of that has been informed by tapping into to lessons learned from Ebola how is South African president Cyril Ramaphosa's administration approaching policy making when it comes to tackling covid-19 
I think really you have to, it's almost more to do with our history with HIV, I think. You know, as a country, we we actually really know what we're trying to avoid here. We've we've been in a situation where a virus was killing thousands of people at a time, where we were burying uh, our family and friends en masse. Uh, so it isn't a sort of a hypothetical scenario. It's not images we're seeing from another context. It's it's images from our own lives that, that we are trying to avoid. So I think that plays a, a really big part um, in the government's response, trying to avoid what we've we've actually experienced in our not uh, not too distant uh, history. And and then of course inequality is is a part of it. Our, our health case public health care system on a good day is is quite strained. We do have large numbers of people who live in very high density informal settlements, high density townships, backyard dwellings and things like that. So the risk of, of infection is is very, very high. And the risk that those people might not be able to easily access good health care was very high. At the moment, we, we're rapidly trying to increase the, the ability of our health care system to respond. But we, we needed to kind of put a line in the sand to, to be able to build that capacity up. Stage 4 in Cape Town was on May 1st. That's after a long period of strict lockdown. People were finally allowed to leave their homes. I put it to Jody if she could describe the mood of the country now that South Africans were allowed to set foot outside their homes again. I would say the social mood has has shifted quite a lot. In the first few weeks, people were really supportive of the president's approach, really kind of congratulatory and and appreciative of the leadership that he was showing. In the last few days, that seems to have shifted quite rapidly. So I'm quite concerned. I think people are getting very frustrated with the economic impacts uh, that it's having. And the the stage four that we're entering into now is it's a lot more complicated to understand. There's certain sectors that can go back, certain sectors that can't, some that can go partially. You're allowed to exercise, but only in a limited time frame and only in a limited geographic distance from your home. So it's just a lot more complex to, to understand. And I think it's a lot d- more difficult from a communications perspective for the government to communicate the reasoning behind these complex sets of rules. So people are frustrated and irritated and find some of the rules nonsensical or stretched too far and, and are voicing that that at the moment and, and also showing it this morning. What's, what's trending on Twitter in South Africa today is, is the hashtag Cape Town because Cape Townians really took advantage of the freedom to go out and run this morning. And so they were quite scary images of people very clearly not social distancing while, while running in large groups. So yeah, we, we're a little bit uncertain where it's all going to go in, in the next uh, week or two. Around the world, we've seen how the economically marginalized are most at risk in terms of being infected by the coronavirus, going out of work, and the ability to feed themselves and their families. I asked Jody if the most vulnerable groups in South Africa are receiving the kind of support they need during this pandemic. I would say it's it's quite uneven. Uh, so th- there's different types of vulnerable groups, and some have managed to tap into a network of resources and support that is broader than government resources and support. So community organizations and, and business-led charities and that sort of thing, where others are, are really kind of being left behind. From a national government perspective, they have increased the social grants. So people who are registered to receive social grants uh, now do have a little bit extra uh, cash coming into their households. Uh, but there are a large number of people who are who are going hungry, who are looking for for support with food parcels. Unfortunately, in some parts of the country, the delivery of food parcels has become highly politicized. So it's not really sort of transparent and fair and equitable how you get access to that support. And and of course, there's also foreign uh, foreign nationals living in South Africa who also are, are quite excluded at the moment and feeling quite uh, 
feeling quite vulnerable. Many of them would also have been working in sectors where, where they've now uh, lost, their, lost their income. Um, on the other hand, this is also quite a significant opportunity where in Cape Town, for example, this, one of the city of Cape Town's main strategies for informal settlements is to increase service levels, so to increase access to, to water and sanitation. And that is something that, you know, we're hoping that it's a step forward in, in kind of building even better levels of service long after we emerge from the, from the current crisis. Are we all in this together? That's the question we're trying to shed some light on in this podcast. We decided to switch our attention across the Atlantic to the United States of America. Now, at the time of this recording, the U.S. is the country with the highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases at 1.4 million and the highest COVID-19 death toll at 83,082. One U.S. state in particular, the Midwestern state of Michigan, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases stood at 48,021, including 4,674 deaths. That's as of May 13th, 2020. Despite these numbers, hundreds of protesters, some of them armed, converged on the state house, demanding an end to the governor's stay-at-home policy. Meanwhile, a shocking fact we discovered is that in Michigan, African Americans are twice as likely to die of the coronavirus. To explain why, I reached out to a good friend and Global Governance Futures alumnus, Abdul El Said, who is from Michigan. Black Michiganders have a higher probability of infant mortality, about two to three times as well. Now, now infant mortality and COVID-19 deaths could not be more different from a, from a physiological level. But there is also a social physiology that we have to pay attention to. And as an epidemiologist, I was taught that you don't just pay attention to the pathogen when you're dissecting an epidemic. You also have to pay attention to the host and the environment. And in this case, the American environment has been beating up on the host for a very long time. And it shows up throughout history, whether it was what kind of jobs people got to got to get during the Great Migration when uh, black Americans moved up to the north to take Take manufacturing jobs from the South back. There were two waves, um, but but largely, you know, in the in the pre World War One industrial era, and then the kinds of homes and communities that they got to live in because of redlining, and then after World War Two, the Federal Housing Administration under. Uh, the, the the New Deal restricted home buying outside of cities like Detroit. So you had a massive white flight. The building of highways under Eisenhower that tended to to build right over really thriving black communities, places like like Paradise Valley and Black Bottom in Detroit are now I-75. And so that devastated local communities. It's a massive highway that runs right in the middle of, of Detroit. Abdul is a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, and progressive activist. He was the youngest health commissioner in the city of Detroit, and in 2018, he ran for governor of Michigan in the U.S. Here he is again explaining why black Michiganders are twice as likely to die from the coronavirus. Think about the bankruptcy, because, of course, two-thirds of Detroit moved out during the white flight era and were left. The, the rest were left having to pay for a bureaucracy that was many, many times the size of what they could afford because both concentrated poverty and then just emptiness. And then the, the state passed a law that took away the democratic right to self-determination. In that process, trying to avoid bankruptcy, the city shut down its health department. Uh, meanwhile, you still got you know the fingerprints of industrialization uh, in Detroit, polluting the air that kids breathe. So 
And, and then, you know, just thinking about things like who's more likely to work a low wage job that's deemed, quote unquote, essential right now um, and have to go out and expose themselves and their families to this disease. Uh, who's less likely to have had a college education that allows them the ability to work in the information economy and, and, and work from home? All of these things, they increase the probability that a person has a chronic disease at baseline. All everything from diabetes to cardiovascular disease to hypertension to asthma and then bear out in the probability of a COVID-19 death if and when a pandemic like this hits. And, uh, and here we are. Right. And so, you know, every aspect of American life has tilted against black Americans as a function of racism in our policy and our politics. And, and, and that has led us to a moment where the environment has been beating up on the host for a very long time. That either causes infant mortality, as it brought up in the beginning, right, or it causes COVID-19 deaths, or it causes asthma hospitalizations, or you name any outcome, it's more common among black Americans than white Americans because of this phenomenon. I asked Abdul to explain what redlining is. Back in the, um, basically before the Civil Rights Act and, you know, even de facto after the Civil Rights Act, real estate agents and developers were, in effect, allowed to zone and to discriminate around race. So certain people couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. The kinds of housing that was uh, geared toward low-income communities who, of course, in our, our society, because of structural racism, tend more likely to be black, weren't zoned for certain communities. And so you, in effect, people drew lines and you know, there was red, yellow, and green, and redlining meant that, you know, black folks could live only in the redlined areas. Um, so it's a form of housing segregation and discrimination that has very, very much affected still the American landscape. And if you look at redlining maps from the past, they map strikingly similar to what we see now. So it still has long tail influence on American civic geography. We've been talking about the African-American community in his home state of Michigan. What does the picture look like for other ethnic minorities across the U.S.? The other group to, for whom it, it holds extremely true is the Native American community. And, you know, you, you've seen more deaths in Navajo Nation than in 13 other states. And when you think about the size of the Native American population, that is astounding. But of course, both of these uh, minority communities in the United States have been the, the recipient of deeply racist and devastating policies, whether it was, you know, the original sin of slavery or the original sin of Indian removal and quote unquote re-education. And these, these policies have flowed through American civic life and continue to pattern the ways that we allocate resources in our society and tend to show up in numbers like these. Other groups, you know, you think about the Latinx community in the United States or the Muslim community or Asian Americans, there is also pretty deep uh, racism. And, and certainly for the Latinx community, when you think about the discussion that our country is having about immigration, it tends to be around a stylized, very racist trope about who uh, Latinx Americans are. But still, as a function of, of deep, buried public policy, no two groups have been affected like the Native American and the Black American communities. Abdul recently published a book titled Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. In the book, he touches upon income inequality. So I asked him what he thinks are the root causes for income inequality and what can be done to fix them. It's not just income inequality, it's also wealth inequality and it's also socioeconomic inequality in other forms. And, and, and I think all, a lot of this has accelerated in the United States because of a governing consensus that says that industry is and, and, and capital are the root of wealth generation and capacity generation in the United States. And that governing consensus has done two things. First, it has very, very 
quickly loosened the reins on regulation of oligopolies in, in capital markets, uh, which the consequences of which we saw during the Great Recession, but also has led to the oligopolization of uh, almost all of our economy. And that has also been coupled with a crumbling firewall between our economy and our politics in the forms of things like Citizens United, the disastrous Supreme Court decision that allowed, that basically equated corporations as people and, and money as speech allowing corporations to put as much money as they want behind causes and candidates in our elections and, and in effect, buy uh, candidates for, for hire. And then the other part of that is the dismemberment and dissolution of basic public goods and services, things like public health departments. You know, Detroit is battling this COVID-19 pandemic with a health department that I was hired to rebuild that's functionally five years old. And you think about that in a city that's multiple centuries old, it's, it's absurd. Those two things have loosened the, the, the boundaries of, of American life for most people left them deeply insecure and vulnerable and then has allowed for massive wealth, wealth generation because of tax cuts, because of uh, reductions in, in regulation, uh, because of the, the potential impact of wealth on politics for the very few at the very top. And I, I think if we're going to take this on, we need to start regulating corporations, what they can spend in our politics, how they can spend, who is on their board. You know, there's a public policy from uh, Germany, which I think is really important, that, that basically mandates that workers have a stake on corporate boards, which in the United States would be unheard of. And also that we start forcing uh, the rich in corporations to pay their fair share and using that money to reinvest in public goods and services that protect the security of, of citizens across our country. Abdul mentioned the essential workers in our economies the medical staff, caregivers, and many others we've come to depend on more than ever during these testing times. Yet, in countries like Ghana, Kenya, and Nigeria, medical staff have gone on strike even before the coronavirus pandemic caught global attention. The reason? They argued they were underpaid, understaffed, and ill-equipped on a regular basis. I asked Abdul whether he thinks this will change now that we see the devastating impact a global medical emergency could have. Let's speak to the situation in, in Ghana or in other developing countries. You've got a healthcare system that's just massively underfunded, largely because the main forms of capital in those countries tend to be captured by a few very, very, very large conglomerates for whom there is no responsibility to, to truly and deeply pay taxes into the system. And so uh, the people suffer under a, a broken, underfunded healthcare system. And then the rest of it is made up for by the NGO space. In the United States, which could not be more different from a uh, development standpoint, you have corporatism that has left us with corporations running both the provision of healthcare directly in, in the form of hospitals and doctors and health insurance in the form of health insurance companies. And that has left us with the most expensive per capita healthcare system in the world, under which 10% of people still don't have healthcare. And most people have their healthcare behind a functional paywall until the middle of the year. But perhaps even more systematically, when we talk about the workers, it means that you end up having corporate CEOs who are making tens of millions of dollars a year, while nurses struggle to get the personal protective equipment that they need and hospital staff tend to be paid 10, 10 to $11 an hour. And all of that has to do with the, the system of corporate capture of our healthcare system and a very similar system that looks very, very different in the developing context. So my hope is that coming out of this, we as a society take on that governing consensus that says that corporations are the means of well-being in our society 
that has accelerated inequality, that has left people on the bottom of any of these employment chains uh, so bereft of basic capacities that they might walk off on the job. Uh, or in the United States, you know, walking out because they can't get personal protective equipment in the middle of a pandemic, that we take on that system of corporatism. And then also in the United States, of course, something that I've been uh, very vocal about is reform our healthcare system so that it's more just, equitable, and sustainable over the long term. And it delivers the value to patients first and most, foremost, and then the providers on the front lines. Throughout this episode, we've been looking at the impact COVID-19 is having on the issue of inequality. And it made us think, even some developed countries and industrialized nations were paralyzed by the impact this pandemic had on their medical facilities. I wondered if Abdul was surprised with how the Trump administration and the U.S. government handled the coronavirus pandemic. I'm used to a United States that acts proactively on these things. In fact, as somebody who's worked in the public health infrastructure in this country, I expect that our country is going to act, it's going to be proactive. I even given an interview early on back in January uh, where I said, you know, if you're worried about an infectious disease, you should get a flu shot. And I was absolutely wrong. And the reason I was wrong is because I took for granted how much of that system has to be run from the very top. And, and that has left our system dysfunctional because our very top is dysfunctional. And so decisions that should have been made, that would have been made under any other president to take steps to prepare our society for what was coming didn't get made. And that has left us dealing with a very long tail, very devastating tale of a, of, of a pandemic that did not have to be a pandemic. You know, viruses are naturally occurring, but pandemics are not. They're human made. And we, uh, we had leadership in this country that was unwilling to pay attention to the evidence and to the expertise of experts, and that was more concerned about perceptions and short-term politics than it was about public health. Uh, and here we are. We in the last month alone, we had 53,000 Americans die. You know that that that'd be like a, a 9/11 every 10 days for four months. And my hope is that we come out of this and we build forward and we say never again as a society and as a world. One crucial and critical aspect that deserves all our attention is the impact of COVID-19 on gender inequality across the globe. Yes, there is a gender dimension to COVID-19. On average, women comprise 70% of health and social care workers and contribute 3 trillion US dollars annually to global health. Half of this is in the form of unpaid care work. It is no exaggeration to say that women are truly on the front line of this global strain. Our next guest is Alicia Haridasani Gupta. Alicia plays an important role in highlighting the gender-biased aspects of the current pandemic. She is the New York Times gender reporter and author of In Her Words, a twice-weekly newsletter on women, gender, and society. I asked Alicia, how is COVID-19 outbreak affecting gender inequality? There are two things at play here, right? There's biological differences and social differences. So in terms of biological differences, data from around the world shows that men are dying at much, much higher rates than women, even if infection rates are more or less the same. And that's a pattern that emerged uh, during previous epidemics too, like Ebola and SARS. So it's a clear indication that men and women have fundamentally different immune systems. In fact, scientists, I, I, I read about this just a few days ago, scientists in two different studies in the US are trying to use the hormones estrogen and progesterone, which are obviously produced by women in greater amounts, as a potential treatment for COVID-19. So there's something definitely biological at play here. But the problem is that historically, science hasn't studied the female body. So we don't really know 
what is happening. Like physically, biologically, we don't really know why men are dying at higher rates. So that's that's biological differences. In terms of social differences, the typical roles that men and women play in society is impacting who gets infected and and also to an extent where they get infected. So first of all, women make up the majority of the frontline workers around the world. Almost 70% of healthcare workers around the world are female and and most of them occupy nursing roles which are much more exposed to the virus. But sadly, they're also uh, extremely underpaid in that role. In the U.S., women also make up a large chunk of the so-called essential workers. So it's the grocery store cashier, the drugstore pharmacist, you know, all of all of those those jobs that are that are sort of keeping us functioning in this moment of lockdown. So they're also at a higher risk of getting exposed. But again, they are extremely underpaid. And thirdly, around the world, women are also the caretakers. They shoulder the burden of looking after the sick in some cultures. And I think this was very, this this was a crucial point uh, during Ebola. Women prepare dead bodies for burial. So again, they're exposed to the virus at higher amounts, at, at higher rates. And so risk getting the infection. So another really, really important aspect of all of this is is gender-based violence and, and access to sexual and reproductive health. So during the lockdown, women are stuck at home with their abusive partners if they're in, if they're in abusive relationships with nowhere to escape to, which makes the situation much more dangerous for them. You know, I know that the lockdown situation is to keep everyone safe, but for these women, if they don't have an option, that is an extremely dangerous situation. Everywhere from China to Spain to France, instances of domestic violence have surged. And here's the thing, though, like I I was speaking to experts here in the U.S., even if the numbers don't surge and even if the numbers end up going down, that's worrying as well. So I'm so I'm talking about like the number of cases, the number of people calling the hotlines, the number of arrests, all of those metrics, even if they go down, that is worrying because it means that women don't feel safe enough to even make a phone call. It means that they're silently suffering behind closed doors and we will never hear about it. Is there anything that can be done to correct this? Something like domestic violence shelters have to be deemed essential uh, and have to be open and have to be open to taking in newcomers. And so they have to, you know, they have to be properly trained to, you know, be able to clean the shelters, to be able to take the temperature of the person coming in, to be able to quarantine them, all, all of that. They need to know what happens if a woman walks in. And, and I, I want to raise another point. So, for example, sexual assault, right? If someone is being beat up at home and uh, is raped and is harmed in that process, hospitals need to make sure that they have a safe space for women to go to to get treatment or even to get tested right for rape so if hospitals are completely diverting resources to fight this virus they need to make sure that there's at least a little space for that to happen what if it's life-threatening they don't know where to go alicia already mentioned that women in the medical and care service were already underpaid before the current pandemic there are already economic forecasts projecting a global economic slump in the coming months and possibly years ahead I asked Alicia if she thinks this outbreak will have long-term consequences for women's work realities post-COVID-19. I find this so fascinating because, yes, they make up the majority of healthcare and frontline workers. At least, at least in the U.S., the frontline workers are, are predominantly women and healthcare workers definitely are. So they're doing crucial work at this moment. But as I mentioned earlier, 
they're undervalued and they're underpaid. And at the same time, though, this economic downturn is hitting industries that also have large female workforces, right? Tourism, entertainment, services, retail. So the the economists I've spoken to, they predict that in this economic downturn, women may lose more jobs than men. So while there are lots of women out there doing crucial work, there are a lot of women also losing their jobs. So it's kind of this weird tension here. We don't have sort of, at least in the US, we still don't have a gender breakdown of the 30 million unemployment claims, but we have state let state level data. And already we're seeing evidence there of more women week by week filing for unemployment than men. The, the reality, even before COVID, is that women are still paid less than men, which means that when they're laid off, they have less of a safety net. Okay, so that's that's one thing. And and I think I think this was during Ebola. Researchers found that even after the crisis was gone and, you know, the economy was back to normal, men got back to where they were economically before the crisis faster than women because it takes women longer to get back to where things were. So so again, that, that might happen here as well. Also, around the world... And this is even pre-COVID, women hold more informal and part-time jobs, which offer no protections like healthcare, um, health, um, sick leave or parental leave, you know, all of that. So on almost every front, women are <laughs> in a much more disadvantaged situation than men. So if, if they have an economic shock, it's going to take them longer to recover. Alicia mentioned the biological and social differences between men and women. We've spoken about the economic consequences of COVID-19 and what this could mean for women across the world. So, if policy leaders across the world had to come up with a gender-sensitive response to COVID-19, what would be the key characteristics of that response? I think that that question is so complicated, and I think one element of it is we are now realizing, it's kind of staring us in the face, the amount of unpaid care that women do on a regular basis, right? The care work at home, childcare, looking, you know, cooking, cleaning, all of that, because now everyone is working from home, they kind of have to watch it happen. So I think going forward, we have to make sure that any response or any recovery policies are are including care work and work-life balance and, you know, all of that at the center of their policy making. So, you know, making sure that there are flexible workplace policies or making sure that childcare is affordable, all of that. We're kind of seeing now that all of those things are almost essential. And so may- maybe this is an opportunity for societies to rebuild, right? But also a, a-, a gender-sensitive response during the emergency, like I mentioned, has to make sure that essential services are serving women, right? Like they have to they have to figure out what women's needs are and then make sure that those needs are met and not closed down or shut off. So for example, like I said, the domestic violence shelters should should be available. Um, hospitals should should make sure that they're doing rape tests and they're they're helping victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. In some places, you know, even on a good day, like in Afghanistan, for example, women can't even leave their house to go to the doctor without a male supervisor. So if you already know that that's happening, you should you should mitigate for that. You should you should offer telemedicine. You should offer maybe door to door services to make sure that women are getting the contraceptives that they need, the medicines that they need. You know, whatever it is, you, these things can be seen from a mile away and can be planned for. Another important thing is our maternity wards fully functioning because you also want to avoid you know unsafe abortions or or maternal mortality, all of that. Alicia has shared a lot with us, especially on how much unpaid work women do. I asked her if she could share a personal story or someone she knows that exemplifies the kind of unpaid work that goes on. 
I think the U.S. is notoriously bad for offering women options to lessen that burden. It's I think it's one of the few countries in the world that doesn't offer you know affordable childcare、um, and and things like that. So so and I see that playing out with my own editor at the New York Times. She is a mother of three. Her youngest child is I think. Ten months. She is stuck at home right now with her husband, working from home. So she's doing all the work that she has to do. Plus, she's homeschooling her three kids because two of them are are ten and thirteen.、Uh, and then she's also cooking and cleaning and managing the house. So, so you know, and I ask her, "Have you seen this TV show?" And she goes, "Are you kidding? I I literally don't have time to even switch on the TV." You know that's that's how her day is completely full of meeting the demands of others. You know, eighty percent of that is not paid. She's only paid for doing her job. Achieving gender equality is one of the United Nations' central goals for global sustainable development. But why is ending gender inequality in everybody's best interest? You mentioned UN, so I'm just going to quote、uh, the Secretary General himself. He called gender inequality "quote stupid" because there is plenty of research to show that equality fundamentally benefits everyone, both men and women. It's not a it's not a woman only cause. So let's let, let's go back to the biological differences. For example, if we had studied the female body as rigorously as we studied the male body, then maybe we would know why more men were dying today. Right, and we might have had a solution. So that that's just one thing off the top of my head. Secondly, placing greater value on unpaid work generates economic growth. It's not it's not a matter of like you know let's be fair to women. It is also a business model, right? That works. It, according to Oxfam, if women globally were paid for that work, they would have like they would have made ten trillion dollars. That's that's a lot of money that they're leaving at the table because they're not valued for all this work that they're doing in the house. And we're now seeing that if women stopped doing that. The economy would come to a standstill. So it's you know there's no there's they don't have an option. They have to do it, but they're just not paid for it. There is this black box over the house, over the home, and and the private sphere, which which should be which should be valued more. And I know this is going to sound a little cheesy, but there are countless studies that women make the world a safer and more peaceful place. So in areas of conflict, for example, women are involved in peace negotiations. The peace deal is expected to last longer. Female law. Lawmakers are more likely to support environmentally conscious policies. Female leaders and executives in the business world are more risk averse. I, I I was looking through this this earlier, and I think there have ne there has never really been a female dictator. It, In history,、uh, in the last hundred or so years, in the U.S., the female soccer team has been doing better than the men's. You know, so even if it's at a trivial letter level, it's sort of like、uh, <laughs> it, that's that says a lot in itself. COVID nineteen is shining a spotlight on many of the inequalities that exist between countries and within societies across the world. At the same time, we've heard that this challenge also offers a unique opportunity. An opportunity to make sure that these inequalities, be they economic, social, or gender-based, are not deepened in the post-COVID-19 world. If anything, let's hope all of us, including our decision makers, can learn from this experience for the next pandemic that will surely present itself to us in the future. 
Our guests today were Jody Alamaya, Abdul El Said, Alicia Haridasani Gupta, and Elizabeth Sidiropoulos. I want to thank the Robert Bosch Foundation for the support of the Global Governance Futures Program and for making this podcast possible. A big thank you to our guests on this episode and to our producer, Sonia Sugrobova, and our colleague, Hannah-Sophie Bollmann from the Global Public Policy Institute. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe to this podcast. You'll find loads more on www.ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us.